When you think about how much fresh water there is in the world, do you also think about how much of it isn't good to drink? There can be contaminants in drinking water after all. We tend to think about contaminants as man-made pollutants, but in fact, there are naturally occurring contaminants as well. And in fact, there are some people still think that it's okay to being exposed to those contaminants, given that they're coming from naturally occurring sources. But many other studies have demonstrated that they have similar and even toxic effect. Similar and as toxic as the other man-made chemicals people are concerned about getting dumped into the water. After all, arsenic, uranium, hexavalent chromium, they occur naturally too. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, contaminated water, both naturally and not naturally contaminated. It's part of our 2019 special issue on the future of water. I'm Katie Burke. Meet Avner Vengosh, a geochemist at Duke University who has provided a balanced scientific perspective on contentious water issues, from water quality and sharing issues in Jordan, Israel, and Palestine, to those related to hydraulic fracturing in the United States. His research on uranium in the groundwater in India has been highlighted by his peers, and he testified before U.S. Congress this past April about coal ash contamination. I spoke with him for an article in our 2019 special issue about the future of water, and started by asking him, among all the water issues he's looked at, what he sees as the most dire. Here's an excerpt from our interview. So when you talk about water quality overall, you can think about two different uh, kind of issues. One is the one that keeps keep everyone alert is the man-made contaminants. And typically when you think about anthropogenic contaminants, there is a huge difference between the developing and the developed world. In the developed world, it's more micro-contaminants coming from drugs, coming from pesticides in, in rural areas. Whereas in the developing countries, um, wastewater is the number one source of contamination and basic contaminants like pathogens and nitrate are the predominant source of contamination and they have the largest impact in terms of, in terms of human health in the developing world um, especially in Africa and some places in India when wastewater is not treated being discharged into waterways, into surface water, into groundwater, causing contamination. And the second form of contamination? The second one, which is, I call it, it's more the hidden contaminants, are the, what we call the geogenic contaminants. These are contaminants that coming from the rocks, from aquifer rocks, typically in, in groundwater. And you don't get sick immediately when you are consuming this water. And in some way, they are as risky and as dangerous as those anthropogenic contaminants because you don't see them and you don't feel them and you think they're part of nature. Um, and in fact, there are some people still think that it's okay to being exposed to those contaminants, given that they're coming from naturally occurring sources but many other studies have demonstrated that they have similar and even toxic effect. I'm talking about arsenic, that is no question about its impact. 
I'm talking about exavalent chromium that we are finding now in North Carolina all over, and mm -hmm. uh, concentration above what health regulation or recommendation. Uh, I'm talking about uranium that we are finding in groundwater through all over India. Um, uh, fluoride is a very common naturally occurring contaminant that's causing fluorosis in Eastern Africa, mm. in, in South America and India. Um, How about salinity? Salinity is another example of natural occurring contaminant that in fact um, is not as much problematic for human health, but is much more problematic for ability to use the water for agriculture. Mm -hmm. So about 80% of the water worldwide would be used for agriculture and not for drinking. Drinking is relatively small. And if the water is too saline to be used for agriculture as being, I've been studying in all over the Middle East, in Northern Africa, India and Australia, all those arid to semi-arid countries, including Europe, um, then ability to use this water for agriculture, which is the major water utilization, becoming limited. So we're kind of looking at the cycle of uh, there is maybe enough water, but the water quality becoming a, a limiting factor to be able to use the water for agriculture. So therefore, um, those geogenic or natural occurring contaminants, they're not as dramatic or sexy, such as the man-made contaminants that everybody's freaked out about, but they have, in fact, in terms of impact worldwide, much larger implication than we are uh, kind of normally think of when we think about water quality. Regarding the contaminants we can reduce, let's talk about coal ash, the byproduct of burning coal to make electricity. What the EPA says is one of the largest types of industrial waste in the United States. How did you end up studying coal ash? That was following the 2008 coal ash spill in Tennessee, the TVA coal ash spill that was a major event because a huge volume of coal ash was escape from a collapsing dam and cover the river. Mm -hmm. Look like a moon-like kind of scenery. Um, that's how we started to work on this. Because just immediately after the, the spill, we went to the site and start to work what, on college and trying to understand what is college and how it's affecting the environment. Mm -hmm. We published several papers on that as well. Um, so, um, that was kind of a wake-up call for some of the regulation in the US. And the debate was whether to define coal ash versus, uh, as a hazard waste. Mm -hmm. And they decided not to do so in spite of the pressure of many environmental groups because they, they, real, they fear that if coal ash is defined as coal ash, then the um, a cement industry will reject it and not use it and therefore the environment issues becoming even more. Uh -huh. So the because there would be nowhere to put it, basically? If the industry would not accept that. And that's kind of um, interesting. The psychology play a major role into it. And there was, of course, pushback from the industry as well. So the compromise solution was saying, we don't have a coal ash, we don't define it hazard waste, but 
we have to put a special attention given the potential contamination. That was kind of the compromise. For your information, the current EPA want to take this away. And they began to do that last year and a federal judge stopped them to do so. So after the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, Kingston coal ash spill? So that's, so we studied uh, the spill, the TVA spill. Mm-hmm. Uh, we studied the, the discharge of effluent into waterways in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. We, dis- we, dis- we investigated the groundwater discharge mm-hmm. uh, or contamination um, in all over the south east of the US. We, we went for, sta- for site all over from um, South Carolina all the way to, I think, now blank to Ken- um, Kentucky mm-hmm. uh, and Tennessee, North Carolina included different sites, Virginia, um, and investigated all those sites and show systematic evidence for contamination. Um, and after the Hurricane Florence, we like say, hey, there may be some spill. People suggest there are spills after the flooding of the, the college disposal site, the landfill near Sutton Lake. The recreational lake near Wilmington, North Carolina. Yeah, so that's uh, as the water calmed down and was becoming accessible, we went to the site and collected sample and, and found that surprisingly, the much of the bottom sediments of Southern Lake composed of coal ash. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the solid coal ash. So that was something new because until now, we had contaminants going from so-called regulated disposal site into the environment. They were leaching, basically? Through leaching or through disposal, but you have the coal ash in the, in the disposal site and it was leaking into the environment. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, we found the coal ash in the environment, in a recreation lake. Now, Duke Energy say, oh, this is a buffer zone, but this is a lake people come there and fishing and living there. Yeah. So this is a total ball game. We have in the paper, we demonstrate why we think that Southern Lake is not the only case and maybe other lakes that are adjacent to disposal site also would have similar phenomena. Mm-hmm given the chemistry of the pore water that we investigated. Mm-hmm. And we had the sample that collected in 2015 by one of our students, Jessica Brandet, because she was studying the fish. So we did several studies. One, I was not involved, but I was involved. One study, she measured selenium in the tissues of the fish uh-huh. from Southern Lake and other lakes and found elevated level of selenium mm-hmm. relative to a reference lake. And another study, we used a similar isotopic fingerprint that we use for water. We measured those isotopes in the fish bone, in the otholith, mm. and, and found that the fish that living in Southern Lake have the same isotopic fingerprint as college, mm-hmm. whereas fish living in a reference lake has different isotopic ratios reflecting their local geology. Mm. So we have another indicator that those contaminants coming from coal ash incorporated into the ecological system and are Mm -hmm. already part of the fish. Mm -hmm. 
For that one, for the Sutton Lake research, now that that coal ash contamination is there, what can be done? Uh, well, <laughs> the first thing to say is to take it out. Mm -hmm. um, however, one have to be careful. I'm not sure you're aware of the case. So in TVA, they employed, uh, TVA um, was decided by pushing, being pushed by the EPA mm -hmm. to, to dredge out all the collage spill from the river, putting in a train and put it in a landfill in a very poor black community in Alabama, which is another story, mm. um, which now people are showing some issues there. Um, I haven't seen that up, so I'm, but there is kind of, um, from environmental justice, it's not a great thing to do. Yeah. However, the, the more, even more alarming and scary effect from the 400 people or so, and don't take me out for the actual numbers, mm. about half, 200 people, became extremely sick either cancer mostly cancer and similar pattern than the the people who work in uh, the 9-11 of um all, all the, the the firefighters and all the people who work on the debris apparently exposure to coal ash and apparently they didn't have any protection was deadly wow so about half were um, became sick, and I think a large fraction of them already died. And also, it seems to affect the families too, because they brought the ash at home in the clothes. Oh my God. So there were some family members also becoming sick. Oh wow! So there is a lawsuit. I'm not involved in that, but uh, um, there's, they tried to drag me in, but I thought it's too much for me to get. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, but um, there's a big lawsuit that coming now against the company that was employing them without warning them and without having protection. Mm -hmm. So I would say you need to take the college out, but you have to do it correctly. Uh -huh. yeah. So that will be the first action I would say to do. How about the naturally occurring contaminants? Is there any way to filter naturally occurring contaminants out of the water so that you can still drink it? So any contaminants can be treated. And specifically, if it's a charge element, chloride uh -huh. is minus sodium plus, exavalent chromium is also minus. So reverse osmosis will reject all the species in the water that are charged, mm -hmm. but those who are not charged, like arsenic-3, will go through. So in principle, in order to to take care of arsenic, you need something else than just simple reverse osmosis. Uh -huh. But for other elements, uranium, fluoride, surveillance chromium, reverse osmosis desalination would be good to take it out. So you end up with something like distilled water, and that solves the public health problems? Life is not that simple. Uh -huh. There are new studies in Israel because Israel is one of the pioneers in the world using desalinated water. 80% mm -hmm. of the population now using desalted water, going all the way from seawater into drinking water yeah. because of the water scarcity in Israel. Mm -hmm. And new studies showing population that was exposed to long-term um, long consuming um, uh, 
desalted water having high tendency for heart attack and sudden death because of the lack of magnesium. Magnesium apparently is very important for human health, for the heart system. So if you drink, if you go, very important to your audience, if you go to buy water without any salt, you hurt yourself. So, you know, but people buy the distilled water. Yes. You see that with the huge uh, container. Mm -hmm. That's actually really bad for your health if this is becoming the major drinking water source. Mm -hmm. And that has been demonstrated in epidemiological studies in Israel and also in Scandinavia. Mm. That people were using uh, fresh water, too fresh, too too clean water Uh without magnesium Mm. was problematic. Wow. Yeah, so you have to know what you're doing, which most people don't. Yeah. Uh, so, um, there are risks and, you know, pro and cons in every combination of operation. Avner van Gosh, thank you so much. Great talking to you. Avner van Gosh is a geochemist at Duke University. A different excerpt of our interview, including some about the naturally occurring uranium found in the groundwater in India, is in the 2019 special issue on the future of water. Find it on newsstands or online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Psi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Katie Burke. Thanks for joining us.